it's funny like my partner and i have talked about who would theoretically dj our wedding when we have a <laughs> wedding and we're both djs and she's like well we need time to you know be with family and friends and do, do the whole that. wedding thing and i'm like yeah but it's my own wedding i want to play it you know like yeah. i want to play the music that's at my wedding and obviously we'll we have plenty of dj friends and people we trust tremendously to play music and that'll surely happen but there's just something about it that yeah i want to be playing the records always <laughs> the sleepwalker a podcast about what goes down after dusk get ready we're leaving at five this episode featured guthrie a montreal-based dj Self-described as a label handyman, Guthrie manages the internationally recognized record label Turbo Recording. He is also part of Ferias, a Montreal DJ collective, with the aim of bringing easy listening to open minds. The collective has played all over Montreal, with shows at various hotspots such as Système, Sans Soleil, and Barbosa. A podcast produced by CKT Radio, brought to you by Elena Meyer. Stay with us. Growing up in the house I did, it was just like a musical place. You know, my parents, similar to how I am now, are just obsessed with music, right? They love music. They always have. They're always going to shows. They're always, you know, they essentially use music as a way to build a community, right? And, that, and usually for them, that was down to the friends they have, you know, all the lifelong friends that my parents have and, you know, whom became family friends. It's all centered around music. Um, and it was always like that since I was a kid, primarily around, you know, the Grateful Dead. And both my parents were kind of in the golden age of following the dead around and really building their lifelong friends around that pursuit, I guess. And everything they did for the rest of their lives kind of centered around music, whether it was going to shows, whether it was just, you know, normal weekend hangouts, there was always music playing the conversation always steered back to music. So like growing up, it was just a musical thing, you know? It was almost like that's just how you build your social life and build your relationships is through music in some capacity. I mean, I dabbled in like jazz band and stuff in, in high school or in middle school really, but it was, it was never like doing music as a musician. It was more doing music as a fan mm. and as a supporter of incredible music and that I think is what really stuck with me and that is kind of the framework around everything I'm doing now is being a fan of music first and foremost being able to show other people music through DJing but also through my work now which is as a label manager but I guess to get back to like your actual question is how did electronic music come into it given that it's quite far from the Grateful Dead yeah. um, situation that I grew up in. Um, yeah, I mean, electronic music really started to come into my life in university, mm. early, I would say early university, so 2013, 2012. And at that time, I was kind of coming out of high school in Vermont being, I mean, like I said, I've always been a music person. And at that time, it was hip hop was the focus of my life anyways, Biggie, Tribe Called Quest, Pete Rocks, Slum Village, people like this. And in university that started to shift towards more electronic forms of music. There wasn't a real reason for that. It just seemed to be the shifting of the times, you know, like what's happening in pop culture, pop culture is so important to music is so important to pop culture and so especially when you're in university you know, like you feel what's happening mm -hmm. in the collective mindset of music and at that time there was the whole like tropical house thing with Kygo which never really got me but you know stuff like Disclosure stuff like Flume which are you know knowing more about the history of electronic music now than I did then that's not the start of electronic music by any sense but for me that was kind of the first forms of electronic music that struck a chord and particularly the first time seeing those types of acts live when really at the time I'd only seen like Vermont jam bands and hip hop acts like seeing electronic music perform live 
and just the difference in it in terms of feeling and power and you know spectacle uh that's what really struck a chord with me in terms of okay there's more here than kind of just it being the current trend in mm-hmm. pop music like this is a a bit of a different thing and for me that chord being struck turned into you know like i guess the first forms of djing i ever did in university which was you know putting together spotify playlists yeah. and having people over and playing the spotify playlist and trying to get people to dance and um yeah the the few years i was in school that was like a weekly pursuit is you know i didn't have a mixer but i was listening to a lot of music um and i really wanted people to come over and have a dance party and so building spotify playlists and you know simply like starting to think about the way other people think about music not just how i think about it and if that thought might make them dance like that all started around that time um and yeah i mean if you look at djing like that is djing right like mm-hmm. playing music with the intention of having people dance and i mean even without that intention like playing music that other people will listen to and trying to affect affect them with that music is is djing at its simplest core and that's when that started Ferias。ですか、コレクティブファンドインマイ2019 figuring life out led us to a point where, you know, we, we needed a place to start building the next phase of our life together. In that time, like electronic music was really starting to impact me in terms of my knowledge of it, the shows I was aware of, the shows I wanted to see. And Montreal at that time, and I mean, it still is, was really buzzing with opportunity there, particularly when I'm coming from Vermont, where there's at that time no form of electronic music. Um, it was kind of like a, the great wild west of mm-hmm. exploring this music for me. And I was coming up here often. And as my partner and I started to think about where we could really settle for this next phase of life, those trips were pretty impactful in that decision. And we, you know, like had a couple of great weekends here. And as we were like really getting to a time where we had to make a decision, we were kind of just like, let's try Montreal. As soon as I got here, I, you know, had kind of moved into a more firm relationship with the people that I'd been building uh, over the, the years of coming to visit Montreal prior to moving here. And one of those people was Sam, who was also going through the same musical journey at the same time I was. You know, he had been the music guy in university and then had started mixing in his bedroom uh, after university and now was like, you know, ready to maybe play some shows out. And we kind of caught the tail end of that journey together and, you know, like DJed in his bedroom a few times, started having house parties a few times, and then got to a point about six months after I lived here that we were like, let's try this in a bar. And I mean, that right there was the, I guess, start of Farius, uh, in Sam's apartment and the real public form of Ferias was at Barbosa, well, formerly Blizzards. It was like every Friday night, right? Or something. It was once a month. Yeah. So we did, you know, we had this idea like, okay, let's, the house party time is over. Let's move into real DJing, as we called it. of a friend of his got in contact with the manager of Blizzards and we're like we do this thing we have friends come over sometimes like we think we could do this in a club or really a bar and I mean she didn't really hesitate uh, this was Adri big shout out to Adri and she 
you know, gave us like a trial run on a Thursday night and we like called in all the favors from all of our friends in town. <laughs> so maybe like 40 people, you know, we got to come on a Thursday night. This was like early spring. I remember when it's, you know, that nasty weather in Montreal. Mm. And yeah, I think for a Thursday night at Blizzards, we did pretty well. So from there, she gave us an opportunity to do a monthly party mm. and we lasted about eight months before the pandemic came. So maybe in total, we did 10 various parties before the pandemic. But at that time, we really felt like we were starting to do something. Um, and at that time, various was just Sam and I. Um, so essentially us two playing all night at Barbosa. Um, you know, doing our thing. And that's where we started to build a community and started to kind of know what it takes to do this thing publicly and to build something and to promote things and to bring people out and, mm. you know, also learning more about DJing and playing together and, you Event know, what, and yeah, you know, everything it takes to go, that goes into building a local crew. Is there anything you'd like to see from Montreal's, I was going to say raving scene, but I feel like like, let's say Montreal's electronic music scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, many goals. I mean, both personal and for the crew and for Montreal as a scene. Yeah, so the goals for Montreal, I think I think I can speak to the Montreal scene in a bit of a unique way because, well, first and foremost, I'm not from here. Yeah. Um, I've been here since 2018, so I know Montreal well, and I do feel like a Montrealer now, but I'm coming from an outside perspective in many mm -hmm. ways. I also work very closely with people in New York in the same scene there as I am here. I also work for a label that, while Turbo was born and bred in Montreal and is still very rooted in Montreal, it's an international techno label, right? It's yeah. mostly embraced and alive in Europe at this point. So through those two outside perspectives and, you know, deeply understood outside perspectives of Razor and Tape in New York and Turbo and its impact in Europe, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what's happening even at a local scale in, in Europe, in New York, in Detroit. And to have that perspective as I'm building something in Montreal and to kind of see firsthand what Montreal has that other places don't have and also vice versa, what Montreal doesn't have yet in terms of so many things, right? In terms of the foundation of what it's like to build something here and be a musician here, be an artist here generally, you know, the cost of living, the ease of life, the community that's here and the welcoming aspect of that community, I would say, mm. is something I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, and that's why I love it here, right? You can come here with an idea or without an idea and stuff will just kind of open up for you. And I'm not saying that happens for everyone, but that definitely happened for me. Like once you kind of cracked the shell of moving to a new place and figuring out the realities of like mm. where you're going to live, what are you going to do for work, you know, all the like base layer stuff. Once you get below the surface, just a touch in Montreal, it really feels like the world of Montreal at least opens up for you and communities kind of come out of the woodwork and relationships can be made and you can really build like a genuinely incredible life here. Mm. If you put yourself out there and if you have the right intentions and if you, you know, have a true love of whatever you're doing, particularly music, Montreal can really like explode for you in it in a good way and mm. I really feel like that's happened to me and that's something that you know to think of where I am now in my journey in music and to think where on that journey I might be if I had moved to New York instead of Montreal is a tough thought right because there are so many factors that are present in New York with trying to build something that we have a better situation here in New York uh, sorry, here in Montreal, like I have a direct comparison 
so often through my work with razor and tape of what it's like to do something in New York and what it's like to do something in Montreal. And I'll say it a thousand times, like living in Montreal is just the dream for me. And being able to do everything that I want to do now in Montreal, not to mention it's two hours from my parents' house. Mm -hmm. You know, I go home all the time and I'm super blessed to have them so close. Like, I think those realities of Montreal and being an artist and a musician here are incredibly rare. And I mean, a lot of people might say that you have something like that in Berlin um, or Am Amsterdam, perhaps. Like, there are other places that have been those hubs. Mm. But when the focus is so firmly on those places, as they certainly have been with Berlin and electronic music, it's hard to keep those conditions in the long term, right? And mm -hmm. Montreal has so many things going for it that allow it to remain Montreal. And I'm not like trying to be the outsider coming in and saying that things aren't changing here. Like, of course, any city changes. But, you know, the realities of Montreal are so like entrenched in Montreal life and in the mindset of the people here that I think these opportunities we have in terms of the size of Montreal, the affordability, its connectedness to North America and Europe, like these are realities that aren't going to change anytime soon, mm -hmm. except for maybe the affordability thing. But even yeah. that seems to be, a, you know, so far from affordability issues in other places that it will always seem in context better. Um, and these are really powerful things, you know, that's why we all lo love living here. That's, that's why, why all this amazing, leave, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, say what you will about the winners or whatever, but like anyone I think that's living in Montreal lo loves it for a reason and many of those reasons are are rare um and so yeah I guess to get back to your question as the goals for Montreal's music I think given that it's such a tight-knit small community in the context of music communities worldwide it's very welcoming. It's very warm. It's very tight knit. A lot of people know everything that's going on in town. Mm -hmm. And that is incredible. It's incredibly a part of that system. I think the one thing that Montreal could do better is that closeness and those cycles can uh, create a situation where, you know, a lot of people are kind of operating in the same Maybe routines. Saturated, yeah. yeah, saturated in that, like, there's not so much outside perspective, right? There's not that many new people coming and bringing a sound that really hasn't been done here yet. Or, you know, like if you have a bunch of people that kind of are exploring electronic music together and know each other so well and mm -hmm. are able to do so many parties together as they do here, it is easy to get caught in a cycle of the same sounds and the same vibes. And, and all of that is incredible right like a lot of those things are what people in montreal want to hear and want to see and want to feel like at a party um mm. but there's so much else also happening in dance music specifically but music generally that isn't really interacting with montreal at the moment and i guess like to simplify this whole thing like there are plenty of djs and sounds that just don't come to montreal you know that haven't come here since i've lived here that are playing in new york always that are playing in Detroit often that maybe even go to Boston of all mm -hmm. places, but definitely are going to Toronto, but definitely, you know, don't come to Montreal. And there's many reasons why that doesn't happen. There's not the right parties yet for them here. There's not the right clubs. Um, the budgets are more limited in Montreal, as we all know. So there's many like realities of why this doesn't happen. But I think the goal for my goal for Montreal's scene and my goal for Farias in impacting that Montreal scene is bring bring a bit more opportunity to people that haven't played here mm -hmm. and haven't built something here, giving the opportunity for those DJs and those parties to come to Montreal and do their thing here. Um, and like, that's a bit of a different mindset from what we've been doing with Farias, I guess. Kind of like I was saying about collaboration like we've been in a routine of doing this incredible thing where we're playing all these great venues around town with our best friends, with some dancers that have, you know, built a great community around Farius and it all works so well 
and we love it so much that kind of like I'm saying the problem with Montreal is that we get stuck in these ruts where we're mm -hmm. like doing this incredible thing that we love so much, but we're doing it time and time again. And we will definitely continue to do that. But I think we're also starting to look at how can we do something a bit newer to ourselves and maybe newer for the Montreal scene in terms of, you know, embracing the DIY parties a bit more or taking a bit of risk and finding the budget to bring a New York DJ that hasn't been here yet. Or, you know, these different things where, like, it's not just the safe and still incredible option of playing Barbosa and Sans Soleil and Salon Dame every month, but instead it's doing something that hasn't been done in town yet and that will open people's eyes a bit more to different things happening elsewhere in the world that I really do believe would work well mm. here. Uh, so yeah, that's a, a bit of a twofold goal for, yeah. for both. The thing about Montreal that I'm, I wouldn't say I'm just starting to figure out, but I'm definitely new to is, yeah, I don't want to call it the rave side of things, but, or the after hour side of things. Cause these people are also doing events and you know normal quote-unquote venues yeah but we've kind of built Farias in um in clubs right in bars and clubs and yeah. kind yeah. of in the I don't want to say the establishment because that's a bad word these days but kind of the like normal paths of building a community is the way we've done it mm. And that's worked very well for us. And yeah, Salon d'Arme and Barbosa. Yeah, yeah, like all the places. incredible Montreal spots, from Blizzards where we started, which is now Barbosa, to Dacha, to Salon d'Arme, to Saint Soleil, to now System, uh, System rather. Like, there's so many amazing places to go out mm -hmm. dancing and and to go DJ in town. And at this point, with Farias, we're in a great flow of those places. Mm. Um, that said, there's this whole other side of the Montreal scene happening in DI DIY spaces, yeah, in after hours. It's much more informal. And obviously, there's a ton of overlap between those two scenes. Mm. The, that overlap being DJs. And, you know, it, these are all music people, right? And mm -hmm. it's a small city. So there's plenty of overlap. But that type of event and that type of party in the community that's come around those parties is something we're just starting to not become aware of, but certainly embrace and mm -mm. be a part of in a more genuine way. Um, and yeah, I mean, Bijou, even Homegrown Harvest and Exposé Noir, which, you know, are kind of at the phase in their journey where they're, they, they came out of that DIY scene and are now breaking into the more established, um, Yeah, they seem you know, like proper... pretty foundational, like the found, like foundational raves in Montreal. For sure, yeah. Um, I was at Exposé Noir for the first time last year. The last time it was there, not the day one, the one before. A few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was giving very like uh, Dante's Inferno. Okay, type of vibes, and I was very surprised. But it was it was very very intense. It was very cool. It was very intense, but yeah. uh, it was giving yeah, like Purgatoire, like uh, Dante's Inferno. Yeah, Max and the whole Homegrown Harvest team, many of whom are also involved in Exposé Noir. You know, they're a great example of building something in Montreal, that can reach a level while still staying true to Montreal roots is at a point where it's interacting with the international scene a bit more in yeah. terms of the artists they're booking in terms of people that are aware of the party and seeking out the party. They're at a point where they've, you know, built an incredible presence. And when you hit that level of things, you have the opportunity to really bring in different people to DJ and bring in different levels of production and rent different types of spaces and really create something special in a in a different way than you know these smaller parties like bijou are are doing um not better or worse but just different and it, it all comes from the same ideals i think the same desire to mm -hmm. build a party in a certain way uh, just just done differently and um are there any significant shows that have changed like that have kind of shaped or changed your way of djing or producing music yeah, I mean, it's almost an endless list, but I, I think every time I go and see a DJ who does things a little differently than I would do it, that can be in terms of genre, in terms of the way that they mix, in terms of the way that they conduct themselves in the booth, in terms of 
vibe and dancing and interaction with the crowd, all that stuff. I think whenever I see someone who does it differently than I'm doing it, but it works and it impacts me and, um, you know, it, it blows my mind in another way. I definitely take that back and in some capacity try to mirror that mm. in some ways. Um, I guess like the most recent example of this would be this past weekend, my partner Alina played at Picnic and oh, I was there too. Okay. She awesome. Great. Yeah. She, she really did. I'm, I'm super proud of her. Um, the guy that played after her, Mezik, who I really didn't know of before. I mean, I had seen the name, I had seen the look with his drapery and sunglasses and mask and mm -hmm. stuff, but I didn't know what he did musically too much. And so I didn't really have expectations for the show in, in, in any way. But of course, after Lena was done, we stayed, we hung out, we listened to a bit of music and you we went know. to Sol after as well. <laughs> <laughs> you did? No, he did. Did, did he? he? Okay. Yeah, did he play? I'm not sure he played. I just think he went there to oh, okay. hang out at Sol Soleil, but uh, I was told he was that's there. That's super and I was cool. Like, that's so funny. Everybody it's, goes to Sol Soleil at some it's point. It's true. I mean, it's funny I'm that... Glad he, he went there because it's a staple. But. It is. And it's funny because when, like, when they were setting up for Mezik after Alina, they started to bring out turntable equipment, the cement blocks and mm. set up turntables. And... I was like, oh, I guess he's going to play some records. And he did play a few records. And during his set, I, I turned to someone and I was like, it would be great if he played at Sans Soleil. He, you know, know? he did. He went to, I don't know if he played, but he was there. Right. But, but I think the thing about Sans Soleil that is so powerful in Montreal and creates such a unique opportunity is that people like that would, like I bet the next time Mezzi comes back to Sans Soleil, he, he would love to play at Sans Soleil. Mm -hmm. And it's just created such a magical space with sound that like you said is way too big but that also you know creates the space right like people don't have to use the whole system and so you can hear the entire system that's really built for probably 500 or a thousand people or mm -hmm. more and you know meanwhile there's 60 people yeah, at the absolute most <laughs> listening to it and listening to records on it and I mean you said it's not necessarily dance music there and that's true but it's also there's lots of records that get played there that people wouldn't necessarily think of as dance records until you hear them there and until you hear them in full and you hear all the layers of them and also when they're played in the context of whoever is DJing that mm -hmm. night a lot of records become dance records at Sans Soleil I would mm -hmm. say yeah so it converts them yeah for sure Basically. I mean I I would put a lot of money on the fact that there have been thousands of people that have come through Sans Soleil either randomly or they just wanted to check it out and left with a completely different understanding of what it is to dance and what dance music is mm -hmm. and what it is to DJ. And I'm sure it's opened many eyes to, you know, both slower forms of music and also, you know, kind of headier, older, different, forms of music than most people kind of on the normal circuit are used to. Um, and that's, that's the beauty of Sans Soleil, really. Mm. Yeah. You were telling me about how, um, how you didn't have expectations for music set because you didn't know about his music. Right. So, so yeah, we were just there dancing, congratulating Alina uh, on a great set. And the mid who Mezik was supposed to DJ with had to cancel last minute because of a flight thing. Oh, no, so heard, yeah. all of a sudden Mezik is playing three hours and he comes on after Alina and kind of just like restarts the vibe completely. And mm. this is something that I see other DJs do and I respect the hell out of is, you know, at the end of a lot of opener sets, particularly at a big party like Picnic, things are already like pumping Going, a bit, yeah. you know, like, it's the end of the opener set. They want to play some hits. Like, people are dancing. It's when headliners come on, it's usually peak time, right? So the music kind of reflects that often. But a really good DJ, I think, especially a DJ that has plenty of time to get back to that point, will kind of just reset the vibe and not necessarily uh, – piggyback on yeah, yeah. the incredible work that the opener did to get things going, but be able to completely rebuild 
uh, the vibe himself or herself. And he did that. I mean, he played quite a slow record and the first hour was kind of, you know, floaty, slow house music. Mm-hmm. Um, and quickly over the next two hours got into, you know, way heavier, way groovier, way trippier forms of, of dance music. And honestly, I left thinking that was one of the best DJ sets I've seen in a while. Um, and I do think something I've been trying to do a bit better myself for years now is have lower expect, not lower expectations, but not have as many expectations when I go to see other people DJ. Mm. Um, I guess given that I just spend so much time doing music stuff through work and through the various stuff and just through, you know, embracing all that's happening in the world. Like I always have a pretty set expectation of what I'm going to hear and what it might feel like and what it might look like when I go to a party. Mm -hmm. And I think that is usually a detriment to my capacity to enjoy myself at a party. Um, Because almost always those expectations are high expectations. You know, I like, there's a lot of DJs I love dearly and I've seen, you know, really crush things and naturally when you go to see these people again or when you go to these clubs again you have expectations for it to be a great night and not to say that I'm let down a lot but having those expectations you know you can only live up to them or maybe get a bit better but oftentimes you're setting yourself up for just being a bit too much of a jaded DJ type if you like set these Mm -hmm. massive expectations so with that party this past weekend having no expectations not really knowing anything about the DJ and him really like rocking me was was awesome yeah and do you have any artists or inspirations you look up to or try to maybe like assimilate to yeah um yeah many many um i think at this stage in my kind of cycle of music a lot of the music that's resonating with me is stemming out of i guess like the american trifecta or whatever uh, which is Chicago, Detroit, yeah. and New York, at least for dance music and even outside of dance music for what I would consider to be incredible music generally. A lot of it has come out of those three places, particularly in house music, particularly in techno. And a lot of the music that's finding its way into my record bag or onto my USB or onto my headphones generally seems to be coming from those three places at the moment. Um, that's both old and new music, I guess. But yeah, I mean, like Chicago, there's like Larry Hurd, who's also Mr. Fingers, uh, Pevin Everett. Um, and then in Detroit, you know, the list is endless from Detroit, really. Mm-hmm. But the first show, one of the first like really underground shows that I saw years back was Mike Huckabee, who's mm. an old, well, now deceased, rest in peace. Detroit guy, but kind of an old head in the, in the general sense of the word. Um, he was always like the godfather of Detroit and the leader of the community and the educator and kind of like the wise presence, it felt like, in the Detroit scene. And I kind of randomly was able to see him with a good friend of mine uh, years ago, really before I had any idea who he was or any idea of the impact Detroit has had on electronic music in this like dingy basement in Detroit and he just played incredible house music, you know, raw, soulful, thick house music. And of course now I know that all of that stems from Detroit and is the Detroit sound, but seeing him back then and especially my current relationship with Detroit now, like that all comes from him and from, um, yeah, the impact Detroit has had on the global scene. Uh, I was able to go to Detroit for the first time last year during Movement Weekend for a label event I was doing with Razor and Tape and also just to enjoy myself. And, you know, by then I had a pretty good understanding of Detroit and its impact on the scene globally, on music coming out of Detroit, both currently and through over the years. And that was kind of the first time seeing it in its brick and mortar form. And that was a very impactful weekend, generally, in terms of the type of parties that happened that weekend, 
the type of music DJs play, particularly the focus on Detroit artists during that weekend. You know, that week movement weekend in Detroit is a global event. It's one of like, you know, the big dates on the circuit calendar, if you will, in the world. And even with that, most of the things happening that weekend in Detroit are focused on Detroit music, rightfully so. And just seeing that commitment to a local scene and the history and, you know, just the feeling of Detroit, the commitment to that and the embracing of that by people not from Detroit who are there that weekend, which there are thousands, was great to see. Um, I guess just to mention other names from Detroit, Omar S. and Theo Parrish, uh, Moody Man, of course, mm -hmm. and, you know, in like more modern forms of the Detroit scene, a good friend of mine, Peter Kroos, runs Rocksteady Disco, which is a great label uh, out of Detroit. They've just done a project with Heidi P., mm. who's a Montrealer, now living in, in New York. So, yeah, there's, there's incredible music coming out of Detroit, both new and old, and that'll always kind of be an impact on me. Um, and then I guess, like, the third, the third of the trifecta is New York, mm. and New York has been the most involved of those cities in my musical journey by far. Uh, my work is working with Razor and Tape, which is a label out of Brooklyn, uh, who's celebrating 10 years now. So, you know, a real label that's had a presence in the New York scene for a long while. And through my work there, I've really been able to dive into the New York scene pretty firsthand and both learn, similar to Detroit, the importance of music coming out of New York with people like Louis Vega and Kenny Dope, who are masters at work, um, you know, really like setting a new form of house music that hadn't been done before. And I guess like the soulful touch of New York music, particularly the Latin touch of New York music, really has cut through and impacted me, but also the rest of the Farious crew. And I guess you had asked earlier where the name Farious came from. Mm. It comes from a Brazilian album. Well, a, an album of Brazilian edits by this guy, Jake Riv, who owns and runs Razor and Tape. So New York for me has always been a representation of how music from all around the world can be supported and be you know, changed or respected or tweaked in new forms of music. And house music's interaction with Latin and African music, for me, stems through New York. show people when you're you're doing a set do you have like something specific in mind you're trying to convey uh or yeah not? yeah no definitely not no okay. definitely <laughs> a little bit yes i think like when i think about djing generally and when i think about specific nights there's definitely preparation involved i think there's a lot of examples of people that have said you know, I never prepare my DJ set and I just totally go off the cuff and read the crowd and adapt to the night. And any DJ needs to do that as well in terms of adapting to a crowd and reading the room and, you know, creating the best possible night for the exact specific situation. That's, that is the job. But I've always looked at it as I, you know, I kind of go through cycles of what, I like pretty quickly and I want to make sure that most nights or all nights that I play out I'm playing music that I really want to hear and I trust deeply that other people will enjoy hearing mm. and you know like I'm not gonna overcomplicate the reality of my job as a DJ and that's to make people dance right yeah. like at the end of the day particularly at this level of DJing that we're doing with Farias in Montreal 
Like, I want people to come and have an incredible night with their friends and dance and maybe hear some music they never heard before, hear forms of music they never, never heard before. But at the end of the day, I want them to go home and be like, wow, that was a really fun night. Mm-hmm. And losing that simple nature of DJing, I think, can be dangerous in terms of like overcomplicating the job, right? A lot of people try to tell tell this big story and have a journey and have it as more of an artistic expression, which of course it is. And I'm not saying that that's not something that should be explored in the right settings, but I think particularly for the types of parties I'm playing Mm. and us as a crew are playing and most of the parties generally happening in Montreal, you know, it's a dance party, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the, that's always at the core of the way I prepare for sets. Yeah. And what is, um, when you're picking out tracks to um, to make your final set, what is your, your process of, like, selection and elimination? Like, what do you, what, what do you look for? What sounds are you, are you sure. attracted to? Yeah. So, yeah, generally, like, as I'm preparing, I throw all the tracks I think I might want to play into a pile. Okay. Like, Step one is going through my records and anything that I feel like might work on the night, I throw it into a pile. Step two is going through that pile and kind of trying to organize it in terms of moods, I guess, or and not, not even energy, more moods, which is, I mean, yeah, I guess looking at the, the parties we're playing now, I usually have a pretty good idea of the room, of maybe the people that are coming, of kind of all the like factors that go into a night that mm-hmm. oftentimes are hard to predict. But given that we're playing a lot of places regularly, we are playing with each other, the, being mm-hmm. the Ferris crew very regularly. Like we really know how a lot of this works and can kind of plan and set expectations pretty reliably at this point, which is, I think is a great power and um, a great luxury to have as a DJ is, you know, understanding how it all might work and planning music to impact that situation as as Mm. best as possible and so yeah I kind of understand the moods of how a night might go generally and I kind of build I take my one giant pile of records and build it into smaller piles Mm. based on moods and you know those moods can be anything from like easy listening early you know, more ambiance music into stuff with a little groove, maybe reggae or dub music, like something, something that starts to impact ears and bodies a bit more Mm. Um, into, you know, now's the time of the night where people are, you know, starting to get a little looser and maybe want something a bit more dance centric Mm -hmm. and whether that's funk or soul or disco or, you know, like, kind of that middle ground music is yeah a definite mood that I always have in a pile for any night and then the whole like peak time I guess Mm -hmm. tracks or records that kind of gets split out into you know lighter like more warm or approachable peak time stuff or darker trippy more heady I guess is a word I use a lot you know I kind of try to have all of these moods covered as I'm preparing for a night and make sure that, yeah, if there are a few unexpected turns in the night in terms of who's there or how the night works out, I can kind of roll with the punches and, and take it in different ways. Yeah. Um, and so what are, if we think about the future for a bit, what are your coming goals for your music? There's so many to list. I think I'll, I guess I'll start with the personal. Let's go answer um yeah so personally like the long-term goal is just to stay involved in music in a very deep way for the rest of my life right Mm -hmm. and that can be as it currently is where it's how I make my living and it's how I spend all my free time and it's how I find all my friends and build relationships I expect it'll be like that for my entire life in terms of the making a living side of things there's always a sense for people that are working in music and I guess just to clarify I'm not making a living DJing Mm. I'm making a living as a as a label manager 
um, working for Turbo Recordings in Montreal and Razor and Tape in New York. Okay. And there have also been a lot of other label projects that have come and gone over the years. But long story short, I'm like a freelance label manager. Okay. And to be able to pursue that side of things while at the same time doing this DJ thing in Montreal, building a collective here, like it all goes so hand in hand, right? Like those, the worlds of small, well, I mean, I wouldn't say they're small. Like Turbo is a very institutional label in techno music and Razor and Tape is a huge label in disco and house music. Mm-hmm. But even the biggest dance labels are actually pretty small operations. You know, there's me and Tiga at Turbo and there's me and Jared and two owners at Razor and Tape. So these are very small teams. And what we're doing at Farius is also a very small team. And so building something for someone else in terms of the label work and for myself and my friends in terms of Farius, it all follows a lot of the same processes and Mm. ideas and ways of thinking about building a brand, I guess. And to be able to do that all day, whether it's my label work or with Farius, is like the dream. Like Mm. I really do think in many ways, looking at my work situation, like I'm living my personal dream already and the only goal I have for the long term is to continue doing that and that might not be the same setup it is now that might not be working in electronic music only but working in music and feeling at the moment like I'm living the dream for lack of a cheesier term um like that's the goal right is just to stay involved in music and to be in love with what I'm doing and I can really say with confidence now that that I'm doing this and I don't think many people can say that so I'm very blessed to to have that in mind but yeah the the goal personally is to keep doing it as mm. long as I can and you know as like a f- quote unquote freelancer or even really I'm sure anyone that works in music at this level like you always have it in mind that it's too good to be true yeah. you know like that there might be something that changes the world like a pandemic or like Spotify did that brings this whole dream crashing down and there's no longer the money or the opportunity to make this your work. And of course I have confidence in that not happening mm. to the point where it you know, crashes and burns everything. But it's always in mind that like the music industry and the world generally is a crazy place and changing so fast that especially right now especially right now and i'm sure we'll only continue to get quicker and crazier you know as the years come so i always have it in mind that if i'm not aware that things can change quickly and not able to roll with the punches in that sense like i'm living a a life that is tentative right that Mm could change at the at the drop of a pin and that's both musically and work-wise but also life-wise and where we live and you know the the luck we have to live in Montreal and to be comfortable in terms of the environment and the climate like there's so many factors that feel like they could change at any moment that I really love when things are like they are now and going well you know mm. because for so many people in this world, things are not going well, especially today. And yeah, to be like working in music and DJing and doing it all with my best friends and doing it in a place I love more than anywhere else. Like, I mean, how can you ask for anything Mm -hmm. else, right? Listening back to your other podcast, there's or any music podcast really like there's always the question of like what advice would you give to people Mm -hmm. and especially up and coming DJs and I think like when I put down the recent and long-term I guess success of Farious that we've had over the years it all kind of comes down to one thing and that's just like first of all being very genuine in your appreciation for what's happening right and that Mm -hmm that is that takes many forms that's simply like 
being thankful for the opportunity you have to play in these bars or clubs or anywhere, you know, anywhere that you have the opportunity to play music, particularly if you're being paid to play that music, particularly if people are going out of their way to come and see you play that music, like that is an incredible opportunity. And you should be thankful to the venues that are making that happen, to the promoters that are putting you on their shows, to the friends that are coming out to dance, to people that are seeing you play for the first time, maybe randomly, especially like anyone that resonates with what you're doing. It's really important to show them thanks mm -hmm. and appreciation and, you know, like let them know that you truly appreciate what they're doing for you because it seems odd to say that there's not a lot of that in music, but especially now there's kind of a sense of expectation and maybe expectation is the right word, but there's a sense that a lot of this stuff is kind of deserved. And most importantly for me, and I guess the best advice I can give is you have to be thankful for those opportunities and mm -hmm. let people know that you're thankful of them. And I really, that seems simple. And of course everyone says, thank you, I'm sure. But if you can do it in a genuine way and I guess let them know the scale of your thanks and, and understand first and foremost, understanding like how lucky we are to be doing this and how lucky you may be to be doing this in the future, you know, make people feel that and make mm. people feel that it means a lot to you because that's what it's all about. And if you are able to do that in the many different ways that it can be done, I think you'll find that people want to support you in that journey if it really means that much to you. And I think of all the things we've done at Farius, just letting people know that we like love them and that we love that they're mm -hmm. dancing with us and we love that they're putting us on. Like that's the number one thing that we've done that has helped us grow through this whole thing. This was the sixth of a series of episodes about what goes down after dusk produced by LNFSEKG Radio. In the meantime, thank you for listening and take it easy, everybody. Stay tuned.